Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! <laughs> Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as who does Killian think she is? What gives her the right? And Wait, how less lethal can a crossbow bolt even be? Well, with the expertise of the great ga- uh, never mind. Always mistrust these three. A battle that seems won, a chancellor who smiles, and a ruler calling ye friend. Extract from the personal journals of Dread Emperor Terribilis II. So this chapter is the conclusion of the first War College games arc. And because of how it ends, it's also Catherine's coming out story, which is difficult to do in a work where all manners of queerness are generally accepted. The main thrust of this chapter is the assault on the fort that had been planned or at least discussed last chapter. We get cat coming up with a plan we get a last minute plan we get a fight we get a successful assault then we get an ambush by the hellhound and cat in a last desperate measure pulls out a little bit of name juice and trickery and swings the victory it's a very short summary because while there's a lot of character discussion and action as far as the actual events that's pretty much the highlights right there. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in an earlier chapter, we read about how there is this fortress in Spite Valley. It was the furthest foothold of the heroic knights who would make war against the tower and who would work so tirelessly, tirelessly to bring down the Dread Empire. And it was the furthest bastion of good in the Dread Empire. Do I misremember that designation? You don't misremember, but the sentence you're thinking of where it introduces the fort that forms the basis of the war games is ambiguous. It's it's something to the effect of a fortress that was built here from the time when the Crusades used to reach this far sometimes, or when the White Hands used to reach this far, easily can be read, and I believe I did too, that this was their fortress, However, it can also just as accurately be read that it was a fortress of Prace for when the White Hand got this far. 
the last fortress against the White Hand before they got to uh, the capital. Well, while it could be read that way, I would say instead that it should be read that way. We see here in the first paragraph of this chapter, in discussing the fort at the end of the valley, uh, that the fort at the end of the valley had stood there in one form or another since the beginnings of the Dread Empire, before the Dark Tower's authority had been firmly established. Interestingly, Dark Tower is double capitalized, so the tower is the Dark Tower. I don't recall the dark remaining with it in the future. But that the fort in the early days had served as a choke point to hold off roving orc clans and Tagreb raiders. In later eras, it had become the last defense against armies coming from the kingdom of Kalo. This fortress stood against those knights, and anyone who interpreted it otherwise at any point would be a fool. Please do not double-check what I said before. I've already forgotten what you said before. The... This this fort is also described as being used for the war games at the college, but the term that Kat uses to describe it in this little intro paragraph, she says that since the last crusade and in the interregnum, I just think that's a very optimistic word choice because it implies that Callow will, and by implies, I think it's explicitly saying Callow will rise again and will be fine and the, the king will be back. Kat pretty sure of herself on that one to use the term interregnum in that period but uh you know i appreciate the optimism the monarchy of callow will be restored even if cat has to do it herself as i said spoilers will be commonplace <laughs> but it goes from a fortress made for warfare and defense to a fortress used in cute little school games right cute little school games and just to so we understand what sort of games take place in this little fortress for kids. Uh, there's a moat around it, of course, uh, and a ditch that is filled with jutting wooden spikes. The open field leading to the ditches was dotted with various traps the legionaries had nicknamed lilies. Pits three feet deep with a sharpened stake waiting for unwary soldiers at the bottom, hidden under layers of branches and dead grass. Fun game. Everybody loves it. It's just, you're learning a little bit, you're growing closer as soldiers, and sometimes your entire leg is impaled. You know, just training. Okay, leg impaled, it's bad. But we know people get hurt. Break their ankles to keep them. They have healers. This won't be a problem. Not a problem, but still pretty spicy, I would say. It's not like anyone's dying. From what Robber had told me, trainees still died in accidents regularly. And... I do appreciate that Prace is really sticking by their Praceness in this, that they're just all right with, yeah, sometimes sometimes these uh, students die. In fact, it happens frequently enough that it's a good omen if a company doesn't lose any freshmen in their first game. It's frequent enough that... In their first game. Right, exactly. It's frequent enough that if you go out for one game and nobody dies, that's not just the standard, that's a good omen. And on top of that, You've got the fact that these lilies are within range of the walls, and there's Cat has some concerns over the mages shooting at the soldiers while they cross the fields. But don't worry, it's bad form to use your mages against people in the lily fields. Which, again, it's extremely prace. And <laughs> sure, these things are incredibly dangerous. We're doing war games with fireballs and uh, spikes that can kill people in 30-foot drops, but don't worry about that. But it's poor form if you use your mages during all of this. 
You mustn't be gauche. Choose your poisons correctly for the season. Thankfully, while apparently some companies will fire on each other despite this norm if they truly hate each other, Rat Company is not feuding with anyone at the moment. And as Hakram reveals that fact to Catherine, he sounds rather chagrined, which is another one of those examples of Pracy standards. This one, not so much horrible or weirdly proprietary, sticking with that, but rather just one of sadomasochistic hubris. You need to be at someone's throat and have them at your own in order to have a full life. It's glorious. It's also just embarrassing if you're so far beneath the notice of everybody else that nobody feuds with you. I wouldn't know. I'm feuding with at least all of my podcast co-hosts at any given time. The rat company is bottom of the rankings as we get, and has been for a while. 11 war games, in fact. Because this is game number 12 and they've yet to win. Which is striking. We've got Robber, who is the best goblin. I will hear no arguments. We've got Hakram, the best sergeant in the world at this point. We've got Nock, who I'm convinced is maybe the best warrior we've seen on screen because uh i mean not counting the calamities of course because the lone swordsman we you know has not impressed i just how are they losing so poorly all the time well, you do have to remember that at least one of those people is very flammable yikes i understand losing against juniper i i do that's oh, yeah. fair right, right everyone right. does but otherwise it's concerning how badly Ratface can mismanage this glorious group. We, I mean, Ratface is important to Cat in not just as a friend, but in his actions. And later on in the War College, we learn that he's a pretty bright guy. So he's just great at administration and awful at battle. That that's too bad. <laughs> but I mean, we get a little bit more context here next chapter. But uh, it is rough that it feels like it's basically just Ratface's fault, more or less. Can't just be Ratface, though. I mean, you praise Robber, and I do too unconditionally, and this is a rhetorical device, not actual criticism. But given a whole night, he fashions with his sappers only four ladders. How hard is it to make a ladder? Like, how hard is it to make a ladder? What do you have to do to make a good ladder? Do you have any idea? I mean, there. Okay, so there are some difficulties. These ladders are supposed to support people in armor, and thus they're moving very fast, which does add impact to the ladder. So they'd right. be, they mm -hmm. be pretty sturdy. Plus, as we find out soon, they have to be thirty feet tall. Thirty feet tall? Well, that's a dangerous height. One would think. And considering how tiny the goblins are, I'm impressed with them now. Wow, Robert must be the best goblin. I stand by that. Best goblin. But still, even with ladders crafted by him, they'll need pretty good odds to take on a fortress. Three to one, maybe four to one? Yeah, three to one's the conventional wisdom. But uh, as far as we're aware, we get really rough numbers on uh, the enemy here. But it seems as though we're talking almost exactly even odds, which is rough. But on the flip side, Kat's got a name and that definitely will come into play in taking this fortress, right? Admittedly, she is the protagonist. So, yes. Speaking of that, though, uh, I, I noticed this, and you might have as well. There are a number of times in this chapter and the previous one, I, three or four times maybe, where 
in reference to Cat, we get a third person in the narrate narration. And I'm wondering, it, you know, this isn't a some kind of criticism here. It's just a curiosity. I'm wondering if when this was originally written, it was in third person and the editing just missed a couple of pronouns here or there. Because I, I don't remember seeing that anywhere else except these earlier chapters and only this chunk of the earlier chapters where we just sometimes cat is she instead of i or her plans instead of my plans when you say it like that it does give off the vibe i almost want to reread this sometime and check it out but that'd be a big project i mean legitimately it only started happening i believe in uh that the chapter before this which by the way we don't really talk about chapter titles much they're phenomenal through the entire practical guide. When they do, when when E does these patterns, these grouped names, they're fantastic. These group titles, absolutely love it. Is this the first of the groups? Uh, let me let's pull up the table of contents and take a look. It feels uh, that way to me. Uh, I mean, four through six are name role aspect, which not it's not the same kind of thing, but they're you know related. But Perhaps yeah. we should focus more on those chapter titles as we go forward. I, Why do you think this one's called Match? Because it lights the fuse for the whole thing? Yep, mm -hmm. you got it. Absolutely, that's what it is. Yeah, we get uh, we get some good sets. Obviously, there's some famous ones later on, but, you know, the trio of Game Set Match, fantastic. And we'll, we will definitely have to bring attention to chapter titles more as we go forward, even just discussing what they mean, because sometimes they're not exactly perfectly clear they're they're great uh, across the board the chapter titles are fantastic amazing so our dear darling robber manages to discomfort hakram by knowing the seniority of lieutenant trapper within the first company and when questioned about why he says we know each other from the great goblin conspiracy meetings and hakram laughs and then after a moment of awkward silence, shoots an uneasy look at Robber. Hawkram! To be fair to Hawkram, though, personally, I would put this at probably less than a 20% chance that uh, Robber is joking. Oh, absolutely. No way. Yeah. So the laughter, because, haha, how absurd. And then the realization, no, that's a very goblin thing to do. And actually, I'm in trouble. And yet, how very fetal of Hawkram. To be at a point in his existence where he can be made uncomfortable, made to worry by something as simple as a plain threat to his life by knowing too much about the goblins. I mean, yeah, we're what, months, a couple of years, less than a couple of years away from Hawkram being just so far above concerns like this. And here he is, awkwardly concerned about Robber's goof. Maybe Hawkram's fear is stored in his limbs. Oh, uh, that makes sense. That Yeah, that checks out. So how do you win one of these war games? As far as I can gather, this one, and there very well could be various objectives, which I think they do imply at the beginning, but this one seems to be just purely get the flag and bring it to your base. They're playing capture the flag. Cool. And what happens if you fail to get the opposing standard, but what happens if you fail to get the opposing standard, but they fail to get your own? It's sounds to be a tie. I don't think this is necessarily a cool and hip strat or anything. I don't think this may be particularly in the spirit of the game. But 
if I may first read a sentence. The pair of mages I'd rescued yesterday was too exhausted to be of any use, so they were hiding in the woods with the standard. I'd given them orders to hide until the games were over if the assault failed. Better a tie than a defeat if it came to that. Well, just spitballing here, but what if during the games I took my standard and I had a pair of scouts go into the woods, a little risky, go into the woods with it, bury it, and scatter the deadfall over it, and then we began doing the war game stuff. And our standard was, for all intents and purposes, unfindable. Unless the mages somehow have standard finding powers that are not displayed in any level of magecraft in the rest of the series. So I think something to note here is, uh, obviously the Precy legions of terror are modeled in a lot of ways after the Roman legions, and also just militaries in general. This is what I'm about to say will be generally true. But... There's a unit-wide pride in the banner attached to said unit. Uh, Losing a banner, seeing it damaged or disgraced was always a huge blow to morale. And so I think the idea of burying it is just not going to happen or hiding it in such a way that it's lying on the ground or up in a tree or something like that would be seen as disgraceful. So probably, sure, you'd win once and then your troops would not have uh, would not have the highest of morale next time or everybody else would hate you for doing something like that. So I don't know that it's a particularly viable strategy for that reason. The, there's famously, uh, there were times in ancient Rome like where they were on campaign, there'd be a battle that was going poorly and uh, a uh, an, an officer would see that their unit was being pushed back and would grab the standard and throw it into the enemy ranks, like throw it over the heads of the enemies. And the legionaries would, with renewed vigor, just immediately rush forward to try to get it back. So they would throw like throw caution to the wind. And it was a pretty successful strategy a couple of times because they were so desperate to get their flag back and not lose their honor. So... I imagine there's uh, there's some of that carried over to the Legions of Terror. Good to know, but I'm built different. <laughs> As eventually will be Hawkram. Yeah, we get a little bit of a, a discussion between Kat and Hawkram as they're planning. Hawkram cottons on to Kat's um, plan pretty quickly, and that impresses Kat. And she says, how are you still a sergeant? And his response is that he failed foreign languages two semesters in a row. And speaking as someone who is, in the hippest of trends, very modern, a monolingual individual. That is very new. I know. Very hip and modern. I'm very cool. Just I just try to be with the times with everything. Good for him. Good for Hawkram. Also, Hawkram speaks multiple languages, so actually, he's just maybe not good at that kind of class or something. I mean, he explicitly blames Old Mietzen for the issues, and... There's a huge difference between learning German or Spanish or Czech or Cantonese as opposed to learning classical Latin, Sumerian. Even better. You got to have people to talk to to learn languages in a certain way. And so admittedly, there's a bit of a strain there. But also, I think it's interesting to demand that every officer of relatively high rank have foreign language proficiencies, certain language proficiencies, including old Mietzen, which doesn't appear relevant to me right now, has the clear advantages of your officers 
are able to directly and seamlessly communicate in different ways and situations. But it also means if you have a great mind like Juniper, but she is not good at fantasy Latin, you don't have the advantages of Juniper, which is the worst thing that can happen to any army on Colernia. It's just an interesting set of advantages and disadvantages. I think it's worth noting, I think Old Meatson does come into play in the Legions, since, assuming the direct parallel here, at the very least, the Sappers use Old Meatson for their commands when using munitions. Yeah, and I can slaughter Latin and say, Veni, Vidi, Vicky. Wait, no, that's too good. You gotta give it the Veni, Vici. Vidi, Vici. There it is. Veni, Vidi, Vici. Veni, yeah, I'm gonna go with Veni, Vidi, Vici. That's bad enough. But I don't have to speak Latin to you, that. I could do Latin for a long time, and I do not have Latin fluency yet. I'm going to say that. I can say ergo. I can say cogito ergo sum. My point was less that you need to be fluent in old meets and to function more that there is a place for some level of awareness of it, at least. And also, you know, it's a school. Schools always have weird, you have to do these things to graduate requirements that maybe don't apply to your specific life. Basically, I'm saying the War College is a liberal arts school. Well, as someone who firmly embraces the advantages of a liberal arts education, I can only support this. Speaking of support, Catherine shuddered to think how much harder this whole game would have been without the tall sergeant, Hakram, quietly covering for all the gaps in her military education. And that doesn't go away. Even as her military education becomes complete and she invents new military educations, Hakram is Catherine's ability. He's 80% of the woe. He's got a name. Well, he gets another one later, but the name that he spends most of the story with makes... Uh, it's The setup for it is so good. As soon as he's on screen, we're getting the, the foreshadowing and the build-up towards his name, and it's excellent, because that's who Hawkeram is. He's the best. He's right there beside Cat, making sure that all of her Catherine-ness actually makes it to the battlefield in a functional manner. It's amazing he survives with as much of his body left as he does. He does very well for himself. You know who seems to do very well for themselves? Who's that? The students at the War College. Insofar as, I realize they're blunting the bolts, but crossbows can punch through steel, and they're shooting people with crossbows from the walls. They're fighting each other with crossbows. We know that when riot cops make the claim that they're using less lethal ammunition, the less is doing a lot of legwork there. Controlling crowds, at least under U.S. standards, involves lifelong health-impacting chemical weaponry and deadly munitions. And I doubt they can do much to reduce the danger of the crossbows. And I know some people die in all the war games. They're shooting each other with crossbows. People are just straight up dying from this, right? I'm not misunderstanding the weapon. No, and uh, there's a bit of detail on the crossbows a little later on that leads me to believe that, yeah, they're very dangerous. Um, the One moment. They talk about, well, just I'll, just to skip ahead a few paragraphs, uh, there's a volley of uh, crossbow bolts shot at the uh, approaching rat company, and Cat knows then that they'll be safe for a minute or two because their fire rate is horrendously slow. That's important because the type of crossbow that I would envision being used here for safety purposes would not have a minute or two reload time, rearm time. 
that a minute or two is like the um, windless bow, windless crossbow level of reloading. And those things are hefty. Those things are the ones that are like punching through armor, like you mentioned. Those are the weapons that you would expect the legions of terror to have because that'd be the weapon you would want if you were fielding it against say knights in armor so yeah they're they're shooting crossbow bolts with an effective range of uh, i think 300 yards 350 yards whatever it says blunted or not even if there's no head on it if it's just a piece, a stick you know a solid a shaft if that hits a neck or a an eye or a head or any sort of soft spot on a body, uh, it's it's not going to be good. Well, at least there must be a way to defend against such a weapon, right? You know, the legionaries have large shields, which they interestingly use, you know, I mentioned the Roman legions, in a formation that Rome was kind of famous for for a while, uh, the Testudo, which is fun that they use the uh, the direct reference there. They're using the actual Latin name for, sorry, the old Mitzen name for the formation, just a direct, you know, like the Romans did thing. It's it's fun. Uh, it's uh, for those not familiar. I don't know how well it's described. It is described here. It's layering shields. It's everybody crowding together. Some shields on top, sides, some to the front, basically making you more or less immune to arrows and bolts and things like that. Now. I will admit openly, I'm not really familiar with the term testudo, but I do know the word testudine means of or relating to turtles. It means turtle, right? They're straight turtling? Tortoise, but yes. Fantastic. So they've got turtles advancing. They've got crossbow bolts, crossbow bolts raining down. How's Catherine taking it? Well, we get another finger clench. So I'm adding that to the tally. Okay, what are we at? Three. 18 chapters? One every six chapters does sound about right. So about a hundred times in the series? That doesn't feel like enough, actually. I'm. This is the most exciting thing. <laughs> I'm really glad that we're keeping track of this. It's going to be wonderful. I'm really glad that we are keeping track too. Good job. Following that, the there's another uh, there's the the volley of crossbow bolts, and I'm going to mention it. It's a pet peeve of mine. I'm going to bring it up. It's not a big deal. The call is first company fire. Now, the order to shoot weaponry being fire is a pretty recent development. Uh, translations aside, of course, because hmm. one does not fire a bow. Fire has no place in the operation of a bow, a crossbow, a catapult, a ballista. You don't you don't have fire. Fire comes from firearms, from gunpowder and and we know Prace had it. Very briefly. Very briefly. It's, CD aside from last episode. It's We use fire today. People use fire today to mean to fire a bow or fire a crossbow. But that's simply because we treat fire as a synonym for shoot, thanks to guns. When there are no guns, it this happens all the time in movies and books and things like that, TV shows where it's fantasy or historical. There's no no guns yet, and people are saying fire. I'm willing to cut this a little slack because there's a very real chance that this is goblin-related, even without gunpowder, various munitions. They do explosions. There's goblin fire. Who knows? But I just I just had to point it out because anytime I see it, a, a little part of me has to, you know, grimace a bit. Frankly, though, if it is from the goblins and thus being excused, you'll still have to grimace a bit because goblin stuff is nasty. Extremely nasty. We get the training version of smokers here, which is smoke. 
And, you know, we were talking about how sharpers versus cussers and bright sticks, uh, how the different level for training versus the real thing. Apparently, real smokers are just poisonous. They're like they're a chemical weapon. They're uh, goblins are just nasty little guys, huh? I love all of them. This is explicitly because I consider all of them to be robber and anything else just to be esoterica. Oh, sure. So I was reading this without enough care. And I had neglected to really hold on to the fact that these walls are 30 feet high. And when the goblins threw some cussers at the first company and they blew, they blew an enemy legionary straight off of the rampart. And Catherine winced because a fall from that high was sure to earn broken bones. Now, reading this, my thought was Catherine, Cat, Kathy, sure, falling off a wall will hurt. But you've got explosions, even if they're less lethal explosions, and crossbow bolts, even if they're less lethal crossbow bolts. Why are you worried about the fall? But now remembering that it's 30 feet high, my question is actually, why do you think someone's going to survive that? They can. Don't get me wrong. People have fallen from planes without a parachute and survived. The science of do fall kill you is, eh, maybe. People trip and die, and people fall into planes and live. But at 30 feet, the rate of you just die is at way too high, a percent. Especially when you consider a couple of factors like, I don't know, wearing armor. Which Which makes you faster. Which makes you fall faster, exactly. And having just been blown up. And therefore, you're a little stunned and have no control over what's going on here. Yeah, the whole... There's a couple more times where this comes up that we'll talk about, but uh, the lack of concern for people falling 30 feet is interesting. Oh, admittedly, Catherine has a lot going on right now. She notices that one of their ladders, their four ladders, they don't have many, is on fire. 25% of their ladders are on fire because of magic and she notes that mage has always made everything more complicated yes obviously sure but i appreciate that what honestly seems to be perhaps not a pet peeve but a well-nursed grudge with Catherine is present here she always has a difficult time with magic she doesn't appreciate magic she becomes the first under the night the high priestess of dark gods and thus wielder of the greater portion of their magics and she can never come to terms with how do magic even and what do magic even she has to have she has to delegate that to others and i'm glad to see that here i liked your word choice there she has she has to delegate the understanding of magic to people like i don't know the hierophant or at you know some of the foremost experts in magical theory and magical praxis and it's sort of just she has to do i think she is blessed with the ability to entrust her close friends allies and soul slaves to understand magic so she doesn't need to i agree with everything but calling Catherine foundling blessed okay fair enough though she's certainly a blessing to those around her with some exception yeah cat charges into this fort and one of her first orders once they've taken the wall is wounded get left behind. Now, I've never been in the military. All I know thank you. All I know about it is second or third hand at best. But I am given to understand that this sentiment is not a popular one among soldiers. It 
it seems as though Kat's running in and just saying, all right, everybody, if you get hurt, that's too bad. <laughs> and expects that that is going to be the command that helps them win the battle rather than the one that shatters morale. But I guess when you are Kat, it works because people trust you. Plus, she knows that she's not going to get hurt, right? She worries, actually, that she might be taken out by a lucky crossbow shot. and. She takes me- she takes measures to avoid it. She makes sure her shield is brought up, blah, 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 blah. But I wonder aloud, for you to consider aloud with me for our audience, would it be possible for her to be taken out by a lucky crossbow shot? Not taken out by a crossbow shot, but would a protagonist of a story, which she certainly is here as the only named, be able to be taken out simply by a lucky crossbow shot. I know the immediate thought is, well, the Shining Prince, the Exiled Prince, the the guy who has a really bad time with helmets, or lack thereof, gets taken out by a shot. But it's not a story of a lucky shot. It's a story of hubris in the face of another story's cleverness. Named can die to the mundane, but not... But can they die to the incidental mundane? I, uh, I don't know. I think for Catherine specifically, that's tough because she is wielding the weight of the in-universe story and also wielding the weight of the actual story, the one we're reading. So for her, probably not. I do think that named can die by, I'll use the word, random chance by things happening, especially on a battlefield, because as far as we can tell, reality, the term that Catherine always uses is that reality nudges things when it's not the name act the, the named actually actively taking a role in changing things if they're not burning aspect or using their named strength or what have you or if it's not a skill-based thing it's little nudges here and there to move the story in the right direction and i don't know how many little nudges one can count on in a battle it seems like named can just die sometimes especially It probably depends on the name. If you're the champion of the West and you are in a border skirmish to the North or something, you probably don't die from a random arrow because that's not your story. But if you're in the big battle, you could get hit with one and that hurts you. I don't know. Hard to say. I feel like the answer is probably no for Cat in this instance, but names, names can't be immune to random chance, right? That doesn't feel right. I don't know, because they're a story. But... If we do want someone to just randomly die, because I guarantee you she just dies. Catherine climbs up the ladder behind someone, a pale-skinned girl whose name Catherine did not know. And Catherine winced when an enemy legionary popped up at the top of the battlements and unloaded his crossbow straight in her chest. And this girl, with, I can only assume, a fully collapsed ribcage, shards of bone riddling her lungs and heart, bleeding profusely from the gaping wound through her, manages to divert her fall off of the 30-foot high, though not all the way at the top, ladder so that she doesn't fall into Catherine. She's dead, right? She just died and threw herself off the ladder to not ruin everything for everyone else. I mean, right? she's wearing armor. And it hit directly in the center of the chest. That probably only stunned her. But yeah, I mean, she fell 30 feet off of a ladder backwards while stunned. And But don't worry, because 
cat climbs up on top and punches the guy that shot the crossbow at this at her soldier in the jaw hard enough to throw him backwards off the wall. So they're both dead. So everyone's even. Throwing someone by the jaw. That's the end of my thoughts there. Catherine tells us early on that learn doesn't seem to apply to her swordplay. And I made the proposal a few chapters ago that perhaps she only felt that way because of the sheer scale of difference between her and the generation-long top of their game, always practicing greatest in the world outside of, you know, the saint. Swords people she was working with. And I'm going to upgrade that from a theory to a certainty. Because she's at the war college. She's fighting against practice and skilled people who are practice and skilled. And specifically against those in Juniper's company, the best around. And as she battles someone on top of this wall, she determines, quote, my adversary's defense was sloppy. And sure, I'm sure there are various degrees of sloppiness among all of the soldiers in the war college who are students, even in Juniper's company. Sure, whatever. But Catherine is two weeks into her sword training, and she's judging a student in the war college in the best company who has presumably not joined up in this battle, like she has, as sloppy. She has definitely had protagonist-level jumps in skill. I'm unwilling to see this another way. Hard to argue with that, for sure. She's learning sword play very quickly. Sorry, not sword play. She's learning how to kill people with a sword quickly. She's also, her awareness of what a good stance is and what proper fighting looks like it's probably outstrips her actual ability because of who she trains with. But yeah, I, I think you're right. Okay, if you agree with me on that, can I kind of disagree with the text again and have you continue to support me? Go for it. Cat has Hakram. Cat has Robber. Cat has Nock. Cat has um, uh, Killian, even. And that means Ratface has them all. Ratface, who we know is an effective administrator, but apparently a loser when it comes to being captain. So we understand Radface must be doing something wrong. But then Kat tells us here, I might not have liked Radface, but I had to admit that the captain had drilled his legionary superbly. So not only do we know he has some of the best individual on the continent, but he's drilled his soldiers superbly. He's made his troops the best they can be, and they can't win 10% of their games. What is the underlying malfunction here? I'm shocked at his incompetence. He he truly must be terrible at battle plans, at strategy. I mean, leaving himself susceptible to overnight ambushes, maybe. Just a thought. That's not great. Well, at least, you know, it's against Juniper, so it must have been a very exhaustingly planned and carefully structured ambush, and not a spur-of-the-moment thing. Right. The joke here, dear listeners, is that later in this chapter, Catherine determines that it probably was, in fact, a spur-of-the-moment thing. Though I don't think Catherine ever knows, because Catherine just makes assumptions and Juniper is better than her. Without a doubt. The, after the initial melee on the walls, we get at saying that the melee had cost one wounded. And it's not who you think, because she looks at a legionary who's nearby, meaning... She's a not dark-skinned ca- legionary, too. Right. Specifically me, not the pale-skinned girl. Right. She's saying one wounded and specifically not referring to the girl who got shot in the chest and dropped 30 feet. So Kat's just counting her as dead, I have to assume. 
Because she is. She absolutely is. But Catherine getting people below her killed? Totally standard, acceptable behavior, I think. What is unacceptable is something that happens soon afterwards. Cat meets up with Killian, and there's a bit of discussion, a bit of yelling to get the soldiers ready to fight. And Killian says, that good enough, sir, as a response to Cat wanting to make sure that the, the soldiers are ready to fight. And Killian says this with a cheeky smile. And I have to say, Killian, stop flirting in the middle of a battle. You're not the woe. You don't have that right. It doesn't become you. It's beneath Cat. Come on. This is. There are very few people who can flirt with Cat in the middle of the battle, and you're not one of them. Shameful stuff. Disgraceful. Almost as disgraceful as Catherine just accepting that things have gone so well for her to the point where she invokes the hammer of the narrative to come down on her in a bit by saying the whole thing was going off much more smoothly than i thought it would to be honest no point looking a gift horse in the mouth and fam this is a trojan gift horse i came up with that myself but i'm sure someone else has before me but i'm proud of it and i would like everyone listening right now to go to the discord or the reddit and praise me thank you it's important for my self-esteem it's very good or the twitter i guess i i'm really not picky plus it doesn't take long past this point before Kat realizes that this was maybe a bit premature and kind of calls knockout on this exact kind of uh, perspective on the battle. But for now, let Kat bask in the glory of something going far too well in a story where things like tropes are ingrained into reality. Nice job, Kat. You did it. Well, job, Kat. You did it. Fair enough. Kat, but she's though, still learning. She is, and she's still developing her command style, I suppose. And we we get a little bit of that. Um, she's talking about who's going to stay behind to hold off, like up a rear guard as they flee the fort with the enemy standard. She argues with Killian back and forth a little bit about this. And finally, she admits that, fine. The captain, or sorry, she's not captain yet. The sergeant who's making all the decisions should leave. Killing can stay behind. She thinks to herself, but that's why you, Black Knight, sent me here, isn't it? So that I'd learn that sometimes you being in charge means making decisions like this. Sacrificing the, in a real war, the lives, but here, the safety of your troops for the bigger picture. And it's good to see this. Kat is taking this seriously enough to treat it as... A learning experience and not just i'm doing this because my dad i mean boss mentor told me to she's developing a bit of her command philosophy there's like lines of sacrifice that are acceptable lines that are maybe that she's not comfortable with but that you sometimes have to do so it, it's cool to see that sort of develop here because how willing cat is to spend the lives of her soldiers throughout the story shifts here and there and she's constantly wrestling with that decision and here we are in chapter 18 with that coming up already and forcing her to to uh kind of grapple with that i feel the entire trajectory of book one of a practical guide to evil is really the chipping away of Catherine's moral foundations or at least that which she thought were moral foundations destroying all of her simplistic uncrossable lines and giving her a much more nuanced view of reality which 
allows her to become, as well as commit, great atrocity for the good of all. Except the ones who are dead. (laughs) I just had a thought. So names are, with few exceptions, pretty crystallizing things for people. You gain a name, you take on the mantle, and that's who you are. You physically look like the ideal version of yourself or of that role. You don't age if you're a villain. Kat, though, gets her name young, which I can't imagine is uncommon. And But she, throughout the story, grows a lot. She changes a lot. Her worldview shifts, her her willingness to how and how to treat other people in certain ways changes how she commands changes how she fights changes how she values lives changes all of these things are expected in a story somebody grows up they mature they have more experiences paradigm shift great but a lot of names don't feel like they can do that in the same way and i'm wondering if cat has an advantage in her kind of rotating cast of names and semi names that she swings through throughout the story that constantly shifting what her mantle is gives her the ability to view the world differently as changes happen i have no idea how we will do this but and listeners say it with me we will have to keep an eye on that because honestly that's fascinating and it's not a particularly researched or well thought out idea like i said what you said spur the thought so yeah I'm, I'm curious to see if we can point to that as we go forward or if it's just an idle eh, that'd be neat if but speaking of cat changing her view her perspective as she learns more also being squire probably helps with what i was talking about she's got learn as an aspect anyway she just a moment ago we were talking about how she was saying things were going well and was all right with that and then we leave the fort we're moving. Cat has a couple of realizations that, uh-oh, things are going too well. And Knock drops the, so we got lucky. It happens. First, no. First of all, there's a different thinking, wow, this went better than I expected. And verbally brushing off somebody saying, this is about to go bad like that. But Cat is instantly like, no, Knock, you're wrong. We've been played. She know, She's moved on from her thought in the fort to where she is now very quickly. And so we get the, we got lucky, it happens. Not great. And then Knox responds to Kat saying, no, there's things going on. We get, we've been played. He says, you're thinking too hard, Callow. Juniper's good, but there's no way she's that. And the sentence ends there because things happen. Because Knox spoke them into existence with his utter unawareness of how reality works in this setting and it's it's great i love knock so much (laughs) and catherine's reaction to this or catherine's narration of things going wrong begins with in an unpleasant concession to the universal laws of irony and frankly that is two words too many these are just the universal laws that's how the world works like and yeah what Knox said is not something you should say in real life because you everybody would expect that that would lead to something bad happening with the knowledge that eh, it doesn't really work that way but come on don't do it that's literally how it works here he's <laughs> it's explicitly how the world works because of Knox, we get to see juniper and i've been trying to pay attention to the opening descriptions of all the major characters 
you know, I think you can make the argument that Juniper is a major character. And I don't think you can make the argument that she's not. So what is she like? Let's find out. First among the silhouettes who appeared at the crest of the hill we'd been about to start scaling was a large orc in legionary armor. Great. What does she look like? And later on, we find out she's got a smoky voice, which, okay. Hello, Juniper. So are we just imagining generic orc in armor? So in this context, generic orc? But with a smoky voice. I mean, maybe we get some more description of Juniper later on as she becomes more important. Right now, Kat doesn't have a lot of reason to pay a lot of attention to her, right? She's the enemy captain. But yeah, she's very generic right now. I, I hope we get a little more. I don't recall. Again, I'm not a very visual guy, so I have no idea who's described or who's not. I'm excited to find out and immediately forget after mentioning it on my podcast. So time for theories. All right. Juniper says, the tactics manual says I should offer you a chance to surrender, since you're both surrounded and outnumbered. Is the tactics manual a war college thing or a legions thing? And is the existence of this clause, specifically because of those very same fundamental laws of irony, which mean a surrounded and outnumbered foe, when pressed, will suddenly seize victory from the jaws of defeat, and therefore, by offering surrender and only continuing battle of force, you're actually improving your odds of winning by not forcing yourself to lose by pressing a victory already won. I think the tactics manual is legion-wide, since it's referenced again, or it's referenced already, and I believe they explicitly say that it is the Legion Tactics Manual. Um, and it is important to remember who wrote the manual, in large part. So yes, yeah, there's, our boy. Right, there's the there's the story side of it for sure. Like that weighs into everything that's going on here, and it definitely weighs into that. However, it's also just generally the right call to try to get a foe to surrender. Surrendering, getting a, a even a small group of enemy soldiers to surrender does a lot more for you in terms of a war, a battle, a campaign, uh, than fighting them. The Okay, but remember when the descendant of the legions, the army of Kalo, surrounds and outnumbers the dead king? They don't offer him a chance to surrender. That's true. Wow. Kat really broke with the tactics manual there, so that's on her. Wonder what her father would think. Wait, she killed him. Oops. But... Juniper makes the offer because the manual says to, and she hopes or expects that Cat is going to refuse, and then uses the language, I get to crush you lot while still getting full marks. It's a little rude, Juniper. Juniper. Why is there so much heat here? Nobody's feuding here. Why is there? Why is the, the, the heat behind this? Why does she want to crush them? Why isn't she just happy with the win? Juniper is the best and has no piece of self-doubt in her entire self and never will. And so she enjoys the chance to demonstrate her abilities. That's all. Oh, okay. That's simple. I gotcha. But you know who also has no doubt? Nock. When Catherine asks how long her battered, bedraggled, and extremely limited supply of troops can hold out against Juniper's more numerous, more rested, and more better troops, he says, For you, Callow? will last till sundown. And I gotta say, Catherine has very quickly won him, even if he briefly doubted her analysis of a situation. He is hers, and I'm sure they will remain close and effective collaborators through the end of the seventh book. Eighth book? Seventh. Last. And 
he's immediately followed up with Nillin, who doesn't really take a large role in the story at all. I don't recall this character uh, at all following the War College, frankly. And pragmatically, Nillin says... It doesn't last long afterwards. Yeah, well. Nillin's response to the will last till sundown claim is a quarter hour. I, I don't know who this man is. I don't know what becomes of him, but I think I love him. You're not going to like the March for Dark. Don't tell me that. Oh, okay. You're going to like the March for Dark. Thank you. It is a very good arc, actually. I like most that of the arcs. I think devils book. are serious. <laughs> but, you know, pretty much anything is serious if you encounter it the wrong way. Even inanimate objects, even trees. Yeah, we talked about how lethal these games are and things like the lilies and fireballs and crossbow bolts. But why do you say all of those horribly deadly things as though they're, they're just light little vagaries of the art? Because Juniper, whereas all those things are built into the war games, Juniper has crafted a trap here, which, first of all, incredibly well prepared in advance. The, the Hellhound is astounding. In this area, she has cut down trees and had these the branches stripped so that these logs would roll. These are full trees ready to just crush everybody if Kat didn't agree to the surrender. This isn't a, ah, we have more soldiers. She was just going to roll them over with trees. And these are used because obviously Kat has a trick here. She's going to grab the standard and they're going to run for the the point where they have to plant it to win. It's this whole exciting sequence and the logs are let loose and Kat reveals that she's from a long line of people who are incredible jumpers. And Hakram is hit by one of these trees and we get two phrases that should never be side by side in the same sentence. We get crack of bones and in the chest. He's fine, of course, because next chapter he's just big chilling with everybody. But boy, does that sound like a rough thing for Hakram. Maybe that's why he cuts off his own hand later. He just has a completely different set of context for, you know, suffering. Maybe he gets a prosthetic chest here, and by we really get a ship of Hawkroom situation. But after Catherine does her best imitation of Jumpman, the man that jumps in the Donkey Kong arcade game, mm-hmm. which I'm not very good at, but I can get through the third level because of the secret Donkey Kong arcade game in Donkey Kong 64, Juniper reacts fantastically. She is there to personally deal with Catherine. She's the captain. She's got to do something. But she's also no fool. And she meets Catherine with, quote, a cautious sword stroke. Juniper is going to try to deal with her best she can. But she also knows she might not be able to can. And it's that kind of willingness that goes far. And if you can couple it with a never give up attitude, you're unstoppable. And immediately after Catherine rams first company standard into the socket meant for it, we read, there was a heartbeat of silence. The game is won. Before Juniper rammed into my side, crushing me under her weight. But then lightning streaked across the sky once, twice. Juniper is going to keep going until right past the last. And that is a woman I would be willing to watch other people march to the mouth of hell under. Juniper is absolutely something special. She's a pleasure to read about throughout the entire thing. And here, she's just an angry little orc, you know? And by little, I mean massive, because she's an orc. Two feet taller than Catherine, I believe, canonically, in these few pages. That sounds right. But 
What also sounds right is that we are out of time for today. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Radits. We discuss... Sin. Grace. And redemption. <laughs> More like damnation, am I right? Wade in their blood. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's a practical guide to evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was The Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Motivational Corporate Short by Light Saturation. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music slash. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at the Long Price. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash pgte. E. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name. Receive personalized stories and art, or even join a PGTE-inspired RPG. We implore you don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and liege, always the claimant, never the named, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 19, Pivot. So, Robert says something <laughs> as a joke in this chapter. I, maybe, uh, do you want to say what the joke is first? Because I, not everybody's going to be reading exactly what we're reading, I have a feeling. So, Robert says something as a, so Robert, man, Robert. Robert, Robert. I heard that one too. <laughs> when I said Robert says, it feels like Robert says, so then he stopped. They did it again, but actually, okay.